So, James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, it was great to interview you for the book. Uh, so, thank you very much for that. That that is uh, that was wonderful to get to know you a little bit more. So, I thought a good place for us to start is firstly for you to introduce yourself. Well, hello. Uh, I'm James Perry. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I am co-chairman of Cook, which is a company I've helped to create over the last 20 years. Um, I'm also the co-founder of B-Lab in the UK, which is the not-for-profit which supports the growth of the global B Corporation movement. Um, and I'm also uh, involved quite heavily with impact investing. So this, you know, the and we're going to talk about B-Lab and B Corp a little bit more as we, as we go through. But James, I think a good place to start, you know, really is the 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 um, you know the organisations you've talked about there is are, are all about purpose. Uh, where where did this sense of having business and and business focused on purpose start for you? Well. So I started my career at Cadbury Limited in the 1990s. I trained on their graduate training program in marketing um, and joined the brand management function and ended up as brand manager of Cadbury's Dairy Milk for a while. And whilst I was there, you know, Cadbury's, when I joined it, was a great Quaker business and it saw its role as very broad in terms of looking after its employees, looking after the community in which it traded. Um, And whilst I was there, there was a program underway called Managing for Shareholder Value which was all about driving more economic profit out of the sale of confectionery. And to me, it was like the kind of all those good values that Cadbury had as a Quaker business. You know, it started, chocolate actually was uh, started as a, as a drink uh, when George Cadbury invented it as a kind of competing product to gin because he was worried about people spending too much time in gin shops and it was part of the temperance movement. So the whole business came out of as chocolate as a sort of social, social good. Um, and it really, whilst I was there, this managing for shareholder um, value project was like the transformation of that into a mechanism to kind of shove more chocolate down people's necks and make more money. Mm. And as a marketeer, that was part of your role, was it? Right, exactly. So, so, it, so that led me to ask some deeper questions about kind of business. What is it for? What's mm. its role? Um, and at the time, I didn't really realize, but Latterly, I've sort of come to understand that that whole managing for shareholder value initiative at Cadbury's at the time was part of a kind of global um, ideology, really, that said that the purpose of business was to maximize profits. Um, And that was based on the idea that the more profits a business makes, the more societies become wealthy and the more they progress. And I think that as I've looked at that and thought about it, I've realized that that is not necessarily the case and that the link between prosperity um, of everybody and the planet and business profit is not necessarily um, is not necessarily a kind of strong link. No. And, and, and so, you know, and there's, there's bodies of research that, that align with that, isn't there? You know, that not just about thinking about it, but there's, there's, there's research that would support that that that's not such a strong link. Yeah, that's right. And I think, um, you know, the purpose of marketing is to promote products and services, um, you know, uh, on behalf of the business. And um, the question is kind of why? Like, mm. is, it, is it okay um, to, to do certain things? And you look at, you know, various different corporate practices, various different sorts of product. And you think, you know, would the world be better off without these? Mm. And 
And there is definitely a misalignment in terms of, you know, the motives of people working for business who who see their role as promoting the profitability of the company um, and the interests of society and the planet more generally. And those those misalignments, I think, have become more apparent as we've seen, you know, wealth creation accrue to the people who are already wealthy mm. and the kind of squeezed middle. We've seen median incomes not progressing, um, the, the sort of race to the bottom with pay uh, and zero-hour contracts. We've seen, um, you know, the oceans being destroyed. We've seen our biodiversity being um, destroyed and all the rest of it. So I think that, that we're, we are all having to ask some deeper questions about mm. what it is we're actually doing. Yeah. I mean, those are seriously serious consequences, aren't they, um, when we don't ask those questions. So the role of the marketeer then, just bringing it back to that question, I'm just going to you know, jump to, to one of the questions and then maybe G can explore about the B Corp and, and, and some of the things there. But you know, we're championing the role as part of our book, Sustainable Marketing, How to Drive Profits with Purpose. And, and you, you alluded to it there that as a as a brand manager, as a marketeer, you know, your role was to, you know, shove more chocolate down people's throats to, to kind of pardon the phrase. But um, what, what do you think about the role of the marketeer? I mean, we see the role as the, of the marketeer as the, the direct relationship with the consumer um, and therefore has a serious role to play in educating the consumer. Yeah. And I think that, so I think that this this whole tr- well it depends where you're which paradigm you're coming at it from right so this is why I think this this whole agenda is so exciting for marketeers because you know when I was at Cadbury's in the 90s it re- I realized that my role as a marketeer was deeply unstrategic you know so the the purpose of the marketing function was basically to figure out how to shove more chocolate down people's necks yeah and and charge them as much money as possible in the process and you know, I think that, that and, and that would, I, I sort of think of that as like lipstick on a pig, you know, mm. our job was to stick lipstick on the pig. And so when we had our sort of brand strategy sessions, they were totally empty. We'd sort of make up some imagined personality for a chocolate bar. And it was crudely, um, you know, uh, oh, I won't use a rude word, but it was, um, it, it was, it was without real substance. And I think the minute that you uh, ask deeper questions about why the purpose of the marketeer becomes much more strategic because actually it becomes about why are we in business? Mm. What are we doing here? What is our relationship with our customers for? What's it all about? Um, and I think then that it, it actually leads to, and, and you need to come up with a good answer to that. It, yeah. I, I believe in if you're going to have a license to operate and if you want to get out of bed in the morning and go to work. So I think that leads to some super interesting conversations. And I think pretty much all businesses can find a really, you know, most businesses are useful. That's why they exist. People want to buy from them. But if you intentionally set out to um, serve society as well as serving shareholders, then you have a much richer conversation about strategy Mm. and about how you communicate and about what it is you're communicating, how you're designing your product. So for me, this is, you know, it's, it's where marketing becomes meaningful. Yeah, it gives breadth and depth, doesn't it, to to the whole conversation? That's right, and it, and it and it stops marketing just being the um, fancy people who spend time with agencies, um, you know, thinking up empty slogans. Yeah. 
so James, for those for those kind of companies that are looking to or marketeers that we've, we've spoken to, often they're looking to make inroads and improve and, and address some of the issues you just said. So I guess this naturally kind of takes us down the down route of the B Corp that I know you've been heavily involved in, you know, from the beginning. So can you perhaps give the, the listeners to this podcast a bit of a flavour of how you got involved in that and, and actually explain what it is for those that may not be familiar with the intentions of a B Corp? Yeah, sure. So um so the sort of ideology that I was talking about um, that Cadbury's were pursuing in the 1990s was uh, came out of the Chicago school in, 90, in the sort of late 60s and early 70s, um, sort of personified, I suppose, by Milton Friedman. Um, and, and the belief was that the social responsibility of business is to maximize its profits um, because of this idea that profits are a proxy for social progress. The B Corp uh, movement is saying that they profoundly disagree with that idea because the data says that profits are not a proxy for social progress. They are in certain contexts, particularly in low-income countries, but particularly in developed markets, that that link is broken. And therefore, the role of business needs to change. And business needs, instead of serving, maximizing the financial interests of shareholders, business needs to serve the interests of everybody, workers, communities, the environment, and shareholders. So so profit is incredibly important because if you don't make profits, you can't attract capital and grow and thrive. Um, but actually, it broadens the role. And uh, the B Corp uh, movement sort of, I suppose, codified that idea in 2007. Um, and there are three components to being a B Corp. The first one is that the company has to change its um, its its articles of association, its legal basis. Um, and companies have been described as ultimately just a nexus of contracts. So it is a fundamental change of your DNA as a company, which says rather than uh, the, sh- the shareholders having primacy, it elevates workers, communities, and the environment alongside shareholders. Yep. So the board of directors has legally to consider the interests of all uh, alongside one another rather than giving primacy to one. So that's the first part, the legal part. The second part is we have to perform for all of those different stakeholders. So there's a kind of quality system called the B Impact Assessment, which helps companies think about um, how it's performing with its workers, community, the environment, um, and, and a governance kind of section as well, and what impact it's having. So all these companies, about 100,000 companies around the world are using this quality system. Uh, and it's kind of... Um, it's uh, the standards are set independently by a kind of global standards board of experts. And then the third part of it is, so the first part is legal, the second part is performance, and the third part is all the B Corps sign what we call a declaration of interdependence because the fundamental organizing idea of this alternative is interdependence, and that's in uh, contradiction and uh, contrast to the organizing idea of neoliberal economics, which is individualism. How did you first get involved with B Corp? It sounds like, you know, it's incredible how you explain it there and, um, you know, a really, really clear breakdown. But how did you actually begin your own personal journey with it? Well, so so we were growing Cook and we needed capital and uh, we talked to all the venture capital funds and we realised that uh, they were operating in that paradigm of, of, of maximising shareholder value and we couldn't take the money because it would have required us to sign up to a bunch of things that meant that we wouldn't have been able to do what we wanted, which is value for all. So I, I, I was kind of, I suppose I, I felt quite gaslighted in the early 2000s talking to them because they all said, mate, you're just wrong. That's not how the world works. That's not what <laughs> business is. You know, just, you just, you can't fight the world on your own. And I kind of thought that was probably fair. So 
I ended up on a kind of odyssey trying to find other people who got it. And I ended up at a place uh, at a conference called SOCAP, which is short for Social Capital Markets in San Francisco in 2010. And I heard this guy called Jay Cohen Gilbert talking about this new thing he'd invented called a B Corp. And I just thought, this guy, he's cracked it. They'd codified it in a way that made perfect sense. And, and, it, and I love business. You know, I'm a business mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. And um, he's a business person. These people were entrepreneurs who'd created a basketball brand and then watched, they'd sold it actually and watched it being shredded by the sort of vultures and it broke their hearts. So they, um, so they created the B Corp movement. So I came across it in 2010. In 2013, Cook certified as a B Corp, but there weren't any B Corps in the UK really at the time. There's about three or four. Um, and so then in 2015, when the, and, and I got to know the founders through some of my impact investment work. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on a G8 task force with them. And um, they were, at the time, they'd been very successful in the US and Canada, but um, they hadn't really gone beyond. But people kept coming to them like me saying, we want to be a B Corp from yeah. all over the world. So Sistema Bay started in about 2013, actually. Um, in Latin America. And they were just now after the G8 task force, they were sort of given license, I suppose, to say that actually, this is a good idea. It needs to, it needs to go around the world. So I helped them launch it in the UK with someone called Charmy and Love in 2015 and sort of got to know them even more. And you continue to do that, don't you? And, and, and how many in, in Europe and the UK now, how many B, how many B courts has that grown to? So it's about 500 in Europe. Um, there's about um, 250 or odd in, in the UK. Um, so it's grown very fast. Mm. On one level, it's grown very fast. I mean, you're asking a lot of companies. They've got to change their legal basis, um, which can be a tough conversation with shareholders sometimes who might not understand that actually this is in their enlightened self-interest. Um, so that can take a while. So on one level, it's incredibly successful. You know, there's There's uh, many billions of uh, pounds of revenue, many tens of thousands of employees working for B Corps, all the rest of it. But on another level, we're just scratching the surface Mm. and uh, there is a massive weight of inertia in business um, around this kind of, there's been 50 years of this paradigm that says that's the business's role and people in good faith show up to work and they think that they're doing the right thing because of this idea that, you know, wealth creation is a proxy for social progress. But I think more and more people are questioning that and then they're starting to question what they're actually doing with their lives. Do you think that, do you think that any organisation can become a B Corp then in that sense? Well, I think, I think, I think for very large organisations, it's difficult because they're so complex. So Danon, for example, mm. um, Emmanuel Faber uh, decided that Danon was going to become a B Corp. And he, he, he set out a 12 to 15 year program for Danon to transform to become a B Corp. Because, you know, all these larger companies, you know, not th- just because they, you know, when they were designing their systems and designing their products, we weren't aware of some of the impact it was having. So there's a lot of change needed. Um, and so he bit the bullet and he's gone after it. And now over 60% of his business is 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 on subsidiary level is certified as a B Corp. And the parent will, he's now brought that forward because what's happened is, you know, although it's challenging and it's change, what he's found is he's got a very, very high level of engagement with his Mm. people all over the world. And that is driving change faster than he thought was possible. And one of the lessons of B Corp is that um, it gives people a much deeper purpose to come to work. People show up in a different way. Um, 
it's incredibly good for attracting talent and for because the talent wants to work with a purpose and also for retention people tend to be enjoy working for b corps more um it's interdependent it's not individualistic so it's not so mercenary so i think that um so so it's possible for large companies and you know the problem that often we have is that the boardroom the shareholders the old white dudes who run the ship don't really get it and they and they were schooled in the kind of old ideology and they haven't quite looked again at the data that might say that actually they kind of need to rethink it that you know it's hard for them to rethink so the environment is often hostile and it depends company to company but more and more i mean there is massive awakening underway um we just need to now make sure it doesn't become you know marketing <laughs> yeah yeah and and because there's a lot of rigor as you've said you know it's it's challenging to become a b corp and then you have to maintain that status isn't it it's not kind of one and done you've then got to you, you know there's accountability it's a, it's a commitment yeah it's um your your ver- the um all companies have to be verified so what they're effectively what they're saying about what they're doing is indeed the case and uh, every company has to re re go through the assessment every 3 years um but what's interesting is you know cook certified we you have to get a minimum of a score of 80 to to qualify we scored we scored 80.1 we scraped it you know we had to undergo a change program actually to get there but what's interesting is 7 years 8 years on is it's sort of created its own momentum like mm. a race to the top everyone wants more points it's like <laughs> oh what 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 can we do differently to get more points and it's all good stuff and yeah. people people when there's a sort of something to go after people find a way to do it so it's a really positive engine of mm. transformation within the business i mean it would be a verner wouldn't it if only every business had to be a b corp sorry well sorry, i think Jess, it might be challenging for some but yes i mean i think i think no i think it might be challenging for some but i do, but, but i do think you know so for so, some of those larger companies or more legacy companies it's a lot of change but i don't think that we should allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good you know i think small steps are incredibly valuable mm-hmm. and um and even having these conversations and and starting with why and trying to get underneath trying to trying to really get to a brand purpose that is authentically beneficial to society and to to the planet is um is an incredibly powerful starting point and everything really hangs off that And I remember from our conversation that the BIM assessment that you mentioned there, which is this assessment that organizations can go through to see where they are and, and, and where they're start, what that, that kind of baseline is, where they're starting from and what they need to do. That is an assessment that any business can participate in, isn't it? Right. So the, the impact assessment itself is free and it's, a, it's an open platform and yeah, anyone can go on and, and work their way through it. Um, it's complex, though, because uh, some of the, you know, it's a, it sort of slightly takes a cross functional team to answer all the questions because um, it covers all the different functions and, and what about what about b lab as well obviously this is connected to this i know you've been doing a lot of work in it so could you explain to our listeners a bit more about how, how what b labs is and how it connects to this so so b lab is a not for profit and it invented the b corporation so it was funded initially by the large foundations in the us like rockefeller and amidia network and ford foundation and so on and um it uh it it stewards it's create it stewards the standards of what it takes to become a b corp and then it verifies companies who um who have filled out the assessment and 
think that they qualify. So it verifies that. So it's effectively the certification body. Um, but also we have, um, uh, we have effectively uh, offices all over the world, like in London and Amsterdam. Uh, and our role regionally is to effectively um, introduce companies to this alternative and then um, foster community. Because one of the, one of the lovely things about mm. this movement is, you know, the individualist paradigm is built on the idea of competition. And to a large extent, the interdependent paradigm is based on the idea of collaboration. So, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you're a yogurt company or a frozen ready meals manufacturer or a shampoo company, you can collaborate on stuff which um, is non-competitive. So mm. how, do we, how can we improve our environmental performance? How can we get to net zero? How can we design products in a way that serves all in society? How can we, how can we benefit our workers and be a better employer? All of these things are much stronger when you have those conversations together. And the, one of the beautiful things about the B Corp community is we're all on the same team in that mm. respect. We're using business as a force for good. So um, there's this massive sharing energy. So you've got all sorts of groups of HR managers coming together to share best practices and all the rest of it. So, the, so, so one of the roles of these regional B Labs, if you like, is to on a sort of localized basis, foster those communities and, and support them to kind of um, collaborate. Fantastic. So if, you know, what do you think some of the biggest challenge, you mentioned some of that from scale, but what are some of the biggest challenges organizations have to overcome when they are thinking about business for good, you know, getting that to the heart of the, of the agenda? Well, I think, I think there's a, distinction between privately owned companies and publicly owned companies. I think privately owned companies, it's easier because as long as the owners sort of buy into the idea that interdependence moving forward is going to be better for the, it's going to enable the business to thrive more powerfully in the future, then the licenses give it can be given relatively easily. I think for public markets companies, particularly multinationals, it's much more complicated mm. because of the pressure of quarterly earnings and the rest of it. And what typically happens is that at board level and often even CEO level, there is, there is a fairly strong acknowledgement of these. You know, you look at sort of WEF, the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, um, and the sorts of conversations they're having. Five years ago, this, this, this topic wasn't in the room, and now it's kind of the dominant mm. topic at these kinds of forums. So I think at the higher level, these companies get it. The problem then is the culture and practice within it and the pressure to meet budgets and the rest of it. But I think that, um, you know, what we're learning is brands with a purpose um, create stronger relationships with customers. They get more loyalty. Um, there's, more, um, there's more kind of social uh, conversations on social about yep. purposeful stuff. So, so I, think, I think increasingly the, the the worm is turning and people are seeing that there's actually an alignment between commercial interests and purpose. Uh, so, so obviously in, 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 the, in the book we, we've written, you know, we, we advocate quite strongly that marketing and marketeers take a, a lead role in kind of helping that, that change happen and doing some of the things you've just mentioned. So, so how, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about marketing as a team, as a discipline, as a CMO in the board, whatever, wherever it might be? How, how, what do, you, what do, you, how do you see that as being pivotal to embedding change and, and adopting sustainability practices within an organization? A hundred percent, I do. I think, I think that the, there's a bit of a, there was a tussle actually for a while with CSR people, you know, like we're the guys that 
um, spend a few hundred grand to paint a few schools and whatever. And we, we have nice pictures for the kind of annual general report. And that's kind of the extent of our, of the business's interest in us. You know, we're just a line on a budget. And they expect a few shiny photos in return. And I think that um, sustainability, so it's, it's a bit akin to the CSR sustainability conversation. Sustainability, CSR is evolving into sustainability, which is a deeply strategic question. And I think that sustainability and marketing start to overlap quite closely. So it, uh, for me, it's about marketeers saying to the business, look, our job, if our job is to stick lipstick on a pig, then we are not representing the best interests of the shareholders or the long-term prospects of the company. Our job is strategic, which is to say, why are we here? Mm. What's the purpose of our products? And if we can't come up with a good answer to that, we really can't market them effectively. So we need a really good answer to that. And if the business buys into that, then marketers become profoundly strategically important and actually the engine of change and and what i'm seeing is what i mean what i'm seeing in b corps in our own company is the boundaries between marketing hr sustainability become quite confused mm. so our marketing department our brand department do all of our internal comms and all of our external comms and we find that their energy the the, the creative what the stuff that they're doing internally is a creative engine for what they then do externally. And, and, and that's very different to the traditional idea of a marketeer, I think. Um, and so I think it really is evolving into a much more integrated function and a much more strategic function. And I love that because, you know, as a strategic marketeer, which is, you know, when you, you, you know, that, that is that it should be aligned with strategy. You know, if you've been through the business school models and we've all done the training, then, you know, that is where it, where it sits. And, who owns brand? You know, that, that, is, that is the role of the marketeer, isn't it? To kind of protect, nurture, champion the custodian of the brand and to take the brand and meet the brand with the customer, with the consumer. And, and so that, that connectivity and your brand is, who are we? What do we stand for? You know, what do we want to be known for, seen as? And, and how do we communicate that effectively? So, yeah. I, I align. I'm glad that you're 100% on board with, with our view of 100%. Yeah. And I think I'd, I'd actually go one step further, which is who owns brand? Well, actually, you know, the marketing function needs to drive that. But every, you know, to be successful, everybody, everybody owns brand. Yep. Everybody is, a, is part of the brand and is a sort of living embodiment of the brand, whether they be working in payroll and making sure people get paid on time, or whether they be in the supply chain, whatever. What the marketeer then does is it takes that magic that it's created internally through all of the practices and all of the things that the business is doing, and it shares them with, with its customers and with the world more broadly. And I think that's, that's why it's such a pivotal and exciting place to be. So, so James, for any, any kind of CMO or, or marketing leader listening to this, is there, they're obviously going to have a lot of challenges and a lot of barriers often to implementing that kind of holistic approach that you just described so eloquently. So have, have you got any any sort of tips or advice about where a marketing leader might just start on this journey, you know, how they might overcome that initial resistance to embracing sustainability or, or changing the way the brand thinks and acts in, in relation to that? Have you got any like top tips that you, you might be able to give a marketer listening to this? Well, I'm a bit of a, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of an outlier in terms of, um, in terms of my, um, own personal perspective on this. Um, I mean, so before I go to that, I'll just start with saying I do understand how challenging it can be, um, particularly in certain cultures with certain inertias and kind of 
practices that have been embedded so deeply. So it's, it can be very challenging. I think the second thing I'd say is um, there, there can be genuine misalignments. So, you know, to compete in a certain market, one has to engage in a certain set of practices which run counter to this. And that can, I'm not, so I'm not skirting over the depths of some of those challenges. Um, I think there's a role when those, when those industry level um, issues are present to collaborate with competitors. So Nike famously did it, I think, with their supply chain in Bangladesh, where they said, look, we've just got to raise the floor here and we can't do that on our own because we'll be uncompetitive. The whole industry needs to do that. So I think there's a bit of that kind of work uh, needing to be done. But I suppose then the radical in me starts to say, well, you know, if you're in a place which I think the challenges we're facing are so profound with climate breakdown, ecosystem breakdown, and sort of the danger of social collapse, you know, with inequalities widening. I'm a bit more of a radical, which says if, you, if you're working for a company that hasn't got the memo and isn't very interested, then get another job. Yeah, love that. So, 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 Garen, we we have three questions that we ask all of our, our, our podcast guests. Uh, Garen's just asked that one. What's that critical piece of advice that you would would give to uh, you know a, a marketeer? Two more, very quick fire. So, the first one: Can marketing save the planet? Yes, brilliant. And uh, and what do you hope business is going to look like in ten years' time? I hope that we have abandoned the broken ideology of profit maximizing and that neoliberal economics has been kicked into the long grass and that we have turned around and realized there's actually a much better way, which is very, which is very aligned with shareholders' interests, but actually aligned with everybody else's interests. And we've, we've reframed the whole idea of what business is for so that it can become an engine of creation and an engine of regeneration rather than an engine of destruction. Thank you so much for joining us on the Can Marketing Save the Planet podcast.